in a couple of weeks, it'll be Easter. And uh, we will begin then a five-week series called Love Can, which we are doing in conjunction with 38 other churches in the Omaha area. It's about how God pours his love into our hearts, which is a way to bring healing to our lives and to our community. And I've been in, very encouraged to learn that a number of you are praying about who you might invite to this series, or at least a Sunday in this series. And I just want to encourage you, keep praying. Keep seeking the Lord about it. Uh, but I also, I also want to give you a little word of caution. Some people you should not invite to church. You never thought you'd hear me say that, did you? Some people you should not invite to church. If they are resistant to all things Christian, what they need from you at this time is not an invitation. What they need is a friend. They need a committed Jesus follower who listens to them, who accepts them, who enjoys being with them, and that Christian friend may be you. In time, they may become curious which can lead to conversations. It may take months or even years of, of friendship and praying for them before their resistance begins to diminish and their curiosity develops. Then they may be ready for an invitation. Um, I have a friend. I, I haven't invited him yet, but I'm praying about it. And I have a sense, based on our conversations, that he would be, he'll be receptive. But even then, even then, I have to be careful because for a lot of people, uh, an invitation to church comes off as criticism. It sounds to some people like you're judging them because they don't go to church. So when you extend an invitation, it has to clearly communicate that you love them and accept them regardless of what they believe, regardless of whether they ever want to come and visit your church. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, many of us are, are praying about this and seeking you about uh, there's someone in our lives that uh, we could invite to this Love Can series. And, and uh, Lord, bring, bring names and faces to our, to our minds and hearts. And Lord, help us to have the discernment of the Holy Spirit to know whether this person just needs a friend right now or whether they're ready for an invitation. And uh, so, Lord, we, we don't always know, but we're, at, we're asking for your guidance on this. And, Lord, we pray for those who will be invited, that, uh, that they'll have a, a positive experience, that, Lord, you will awaken something in them that wasn't there before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in a six-week season called Lent uh, leading up to Easter. And for these six Sundays, our theme is, as you can see on the screen, bold praying, bold living. And uh, if, you're, if you've missed Sundays or you're new here, you can go back and watch the previous messages uh, and, uh, and on our website or if you get our Faith Westwood app. You can, it's really easy to watch there. Uh, also, you can listen via podcast. Have any of you ever used the podcast? Yeah, a number of you had. That's really handy and a lot of times... Uh, and, of course, we also have a few audio CDs out at the info table in the foyer. 
Now, during this series, we've been learning a very powerful truth. Here it is. There are many things God wants to do and will do when people pray. God has so designed it that our prayers open doors of grace that would otherwise remain closed. So let's say this statement together, shall we? There are many things God wants to do and will do when people pray. Now, for a lot of us, we've been thinking about this for the last few weeks, and it's kind of really rocking our world. You mean God would even change things, do things differently because we pray? Well, that's what, that's what the Bible says. That's what God promises us. Uh, and I can tell you, uh, it's sort of changing my inspiration and boldness in praying. Uh, in my small group, we meet on Fridays uh, at noon, and, and we talked about, the que- one of the questions we talked about was, what is... Uh, what do you ask God for most? What do you ask God for most? We just shared about that. It was really uh, a very enlightening, amazing conversation. Uh, I think sometimes, though, we get locked into praying for certain things that we always ask for. You know, good health, happiness, winning lottery tickets. I don't know what you pray for, but... Praying, praying according to God's will means uh, seeking to find out what, what God wants us to pray for most. And the more we pray in line with what God wants, the bolder we become in our prayers. You know, so often I think we get stuck in our praying thinking that uh, it's all that I have to pray and overcome and, and, God, and, and try to get God to do something he would, doesn't want to do. Have you ever felt that way? I have. That prayer is about trying to get God to do something he doesn't want to do? I love this quote from the 19th century Irish archbishop uh, Richard Trench. He says this, We must not conceive of prayer as though it were over an overcoming of God's reluctance, when it is, in fact, a laying hold of his highest willingness. You know, I've, I've seen versions of that quote before and I never really knew where they came from until I until I just read it recently that it came from uh, Richard Trench and I really love that quote that it's not overcoming God's reluctance it's laying hold of God's willingness we do not pray to a reluctant God we pray to a willing God and there's one prayer that I hope that you will pray every day, all day long, just sort of keep breathing and thinking this prayer. It's only two words, only five letters. Use me. What a prayer. All day long, just saying, okay, Lord, use me. Use me. Whatever you have in mind, wherever I go, whatever I'm doing, Lord, use me. God, let me tell you, God wants to answer that prayer. And the more you pray it, the more you're going to uh, recognize opportunities as they come up and, and, and be used by God. You see, bold praying leads to bold living. Let's open our Bibles uh, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, I, you know, I see a few of you bringing your Bibles to church, and that always warms a pastor's heart. So I would encourage you to keep doing that. Some of you use your uh, electronic devices. That's great, too. Uh, we also have pew Bibles in the, in the pew rack. Grab one of those, and you'll see it on page 1221 there. 
by the way, um, one of the things at Faith Westwood we love to do is give away Bibles. So if you don't have a Bible of your own, especially one that's very readable, just take a pew Bible. We'd love for you to have it. It's yours for keeps. Now, before we get into verse 9, in the two previous verses, uh, Peter talks about those who reject Christ. But here in verse 9, he comes back to those who belong to Jesus. He says, or if you're following along with me there, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And today we're going to focus on, a, on one particular phrase in that verse, a royal priesthood, saying you are, by, by virtue of belonging to Jesus, you are a royal priesthood. God has called you to be a priest. Now you're all pretty well freaked out, right? That God has called you to be a priest, but I want to warn you, well, one thing is, at least you don't have to wear a funny collar, right? Now, some pastors like to talk about their call to the ministry. Oh, yeah, I remember when I was called to the ministry. You know, I don't ever talk like that. I do sometimes talk about how I was called to be a preacher and a pastor, but I don't like to use the phrase being called to ministry because it makes other people feel like I'm the only one who has ministry when, in fact, you are called to ministry, Right? You're called to be a priest. You're called to be in ministry. Everybody who belongs to Jesus. Now, what is a priest? A priest is simply this. A mediator between God and the people. That's a priest. A mediator between God and the people. I like Maxie Dunham's way of making it very simple. He says, a priest is someone who speaks to God for the people and speaks to the people for God. And that's really our, our, our big idea for today. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, the people realized that it was, they felt much too dangerous to go and talk to God directly uh, and to, to approach the holy presence of God. They needed a mediator. Now, anybody could pray, but when it came to doing the really serious business with God, uh, in God's presence, forgiveness of sins, all that, they said, we're going to leave it to the priest. Uh, they, they, they would have some, the priest would, would lay the sacrifice on the altar, and the priest would go into the holiest part of the temple uh, to, to approach God uh, on their behalf. They needed a priest, a mediator. And when Israel's high priest entered the temple, he'd wear special clothing. He had special priestly garb that he would wear, including an outer vest uh, that was called an ephod. That's, that's real, the Hebrew word, but most translations in the Bible still just call it the ephod. It had a front and a back connected at the shoulders. And on each shoulder was an onyx stone with the names of the 12 sons of Jacob. And, of course, we know that those became then the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, pretty much. Uh, and so uh, the six the son, six sons' names were engraved on one stone and six on the other. And then over the front of the ephod was another breast piece with 12 different kinds of precious stones, each engraved with one of the names of the 12 tribes. So the stones symbolized that when the priest came into the temple, 
he was carrying the people on his shoulders. And he was carrying the people on his heart before God. And when you belong to Jesus, you become his royal priest. You carry the people on your shoulders and on your heart. And you pray to God boldly for them, and you speak boldly to them for God. It's kind of a sobering statistic I came across recently that there are at, uh, at least 2,000 people in this state who are forced to work in the sex trade. You know, I grew up in Ashland, Nebraska, and that's about the population of that town. It's 2,000. Stephen Patrick O'Meara was recently, he recently retired as the head of the Nebraska Human Trafficking Task Force, but he remembers, he says, his first sting operation. It included rescuing a 19-year-old woman from an appointment in the front seat of a car while her six-week-old baby was in the back seat. O'Meara says, you never forget those. Abuse tends to rise during times of high tourism, so Christians in our city have banded together to pray during the College World Series. There's a prayer vigil uh, held at the Salvation Army from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. each day for 10 days during the College World Series. And I know a few people from Faith Westwood who have gone down there and taken, shift, uh, taken shifts to pray. And I, I was thinking about that, and I've been wondering if maybe one or two of our groups might want to say, let's make that a project this year, to go down together and pray during that, they call it the, the traffic prayer series. You pray for victims. You pray for law enforcement. You pray for all people who are working in other ways to end this enslavement. Now, what goes along with that is news coverage uh, for the traffic prayer series, and that raises public awareness. So while we're praying and speaking to God, we're also speaking to the people. That is priestly work in our community. If you're interested, the, the prayer site for it has not been yet updated for 2017, but here's the URL, trafficprayerseries.com. Traffic with a C-K, prayerseries.com. John Woolman was an early American colonist. He, he died a few years before the Declaration of Independence. He was a Quaker Christian and an early abolitionist. When he was 23 years old, uh, working as a clerk, his employer asked him to write a bill of sale for a slave. Woolman spoke up. He said that he believed that, that slavery, slaveholding was inconsistent with Christianity, but his boss wanted him to write it. And so he wrote the bill of sale. That day must have stuck in his conscience. By the time he was 26, he was in business for himself, and he was asked to write a will for someone who, who uh, was afraid he might die very soon. 
And uh, that will would have transferred ownership of a slave to an heir. Woolman refused to write the will with that provision. And because of it, he convinced the owner to set that slave free. Quakers are known for spending times of silence together, seeking the spirit of, of Christ in prayer. And uh, Woolman uh, made it his mission to travel around the, uh, the colonies expressing his concern about slavery. And then, it, wherever these meetings we would go to, they would, they would pray about it and uh, seek God's unity and God's clarity and guidance about it. And by the end of the Revolutionary War, nearly all Quakers in North America had freed their slaves. We are Jesus' royal priests. We speak to God for the people, and we speak to the people for God. Notice in verse 9, if you'll kind of look back in your Bible there, I hope you still have it open. Um, it says, the reason that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, is so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. We declare. We speak out and speak up. Now, I want you to know that I will not use this pulpit to denounce or it, to uh, endorse any political candidate. But on Friday, I did write a, a note to a certain city council candidate encouraging him to stand up for freedom of religion. Some of you know that story. And I wrote a note to the Islamic, Omaha Islamic Center, pledging my support to stand with them against discrimination. We declare. We speak out and speak up. And sometimes we do that with our words, but some other times the best way to do that is with our actions. Maxie Dunham adds the story of when uh, John Woolman was invited to the home of a, of a fellow Quaker for dinner. And when he got there, he noticed all of these servants who were busy working and serving and all. And so he asked, um, are they slaves? And he got an answer, yes, they are. Woolman immediately got up and walked out and left without saying a word. He was giving, he, he didn't have to say a word. His action said it all. And the next morning, that slave owner freed all his slaves. Uh, it, the, the, the history is that uh, uh, despite his wife's objections, <laughs> your actions, as well as your words, are a way that you speak as a priest in our world. In the Old Testament, if you were uh, a male and your father was a priest, then you were born to be a priest. As Christians, you and I are not born to be priests. We are reborn to be priests, male and female. We are reborn into new life through Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, uh, a little earlier on that page, in the left column, if you're in the Pew Bible, to uh, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Um, this is one sentence. And here's what it says. You can follow along. 
For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And I was struck by the middle uh, phrase of that verse. It says, you were redeemed, meaning someone paid to set you free. You were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you. And that word empty can also be translated uh, useless, futile, worthless. He's saying this was your life before Christ. You worshiped things instead of worshiping God. You lived in disobedience to God's truth. Your destiny was eternal separation from God. But through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed. You've been set free. You are chosen. You are God's chosen people, his royal priests. Now, if you'll jump back to the right column there, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It say, he says, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, meaning your true home is not this world, your true home is God's kingdom, as foreigners and ex exiles, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now, just a little pause there. In this life, our sinful desires don't go away. Just because you belong to Jesus doesn't mean those sinful inclinations vanish. We are always in the battle, turning our backs to those desires. Now, going on. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So those people who accuse you now, those people who make fun of you, despise you, ridicule you, they're also watching you. And when they see your life, when they see you Turn your back on evil desires, things that would be so much easier to do, but you stand up for integrity. Some of them will become curious. Some of them will even become actively seeking to know more about what this is. And some of them will, will want to be a part of it. And Jesus will bring them out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. And on the day that Jesus comes to bring us home, they will be in that number. And they will give glory to God. Some of you here today may be curious. And you wonder, is Jesus really the Savior sent from God? It's a good question. I think it's a question worth exploring so if you have curiosity, then let that curiosity encourage it. Kind of let it, let it flourish, that curiosity in you. And some of you may say, you know, I, I used to be curious, but I think I've just kind of let it slide. It's just kind of, kind of gone to the back burner, and I don't really feel as curious as I used to. Those... Those questions that I had, I just thought, well, there's not any answers for them. I want you to know that if you 
have curiosity, if you have questions you struggle with, you don't know, how can I reconcile faith with this reality? I'd be happy to talk to you. Others here that would be welcome to talk, would be eager to talk to you as well. Because I want you to know, these are questions we all face. The, the questions and struggles and doubts that you have are not new. Countless people have, have, have dealt with those before. And we would like to at least share with you how we came to terms with that or responded to that. And so I want to encourage you to, to continue your search. Commit to your investigation. Uh, invest in the quest of faith. And for some of you, maybe you feel like, okay, this is the day. I've seen it in other people. I, I know it's got to be real and true. I want to be redeemed. I want to be set free from, from my empty way of life. Uh, Jesus is ready. He wants to bring you out of that darkness and into the light. doesn't mean we see everything clearly, but, but, we, but we continue to, to follow him, and that light becomes greater and brighter. So this morning, as part of the invitation, I'm going to invite you to come and receive communion. And not only are we receiving the bread and the cup, we are also, by faith, receiving Christ. We're saying, Jesus, I need you. I need you to save me and bring me out of my own darkness and my own empty life and into your life and your light.